Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down we dead. We women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. Of evolution has taught us it's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Hello and welcome. This is Bite the Pen, and I am Jen Hansen. And sitting on the other side of what I'm calling the water jungle is Miss Charlotte Martinez. Hello, Charlotte. How are you doing? Oh, I'm very well, Jen Hansen. How are you? I am very well. Thank you. My partner and I have been watching a lot of Doctor Who, and in this episode a couple days ago, there are these alien creatures that have been on Earth like the whole time, and they all create a jungle all over the world. They create a jungle like overnight, and it's to shield the Earth from like a solar flare by using additional oxygen to block out the fire that would have otherwise destroyed the planet. And I really want to watch that movie. I want to see it as a movie, but it's just an episode. And I was like, hey, jungle. That's an excellent concept, too, especially for, like, post-apocalyptic stuff. Like the Philip Dick story I was telling you about is yeah. very similar. See? Jungle. That's what we revert to. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Well, I, I don't want to give anything away so early, but we will be talking about the jungle today. I think that I want to preface this with saying that this is a bit more, I think, more of a nuanced episode because we're not going to be talking about one source and we're not going to be talking about a lot of elements of a genre or anything we're just going to be talking about one trope the episode is women in the jungle or if you've listened to us before you'd know it'd be like women in the jungle pens or pens <laughs> in the women's jungle i don't know that doesn't sound <laughs> right not that one <laughs> you were going to tell us a bit more of the trope and hopefully you thought of this because i just thought of it and it's not very helpful but the definition of a trope might be good that's a good point. Let's clarify what Jen and I mean when we say trope, because this is how yeah. we've been using the term, which is a repeating pattern in story. And the one we are going to talk about, I think, follows that definition as well as the definition of an archetype, because it's it mm. could be a reoccurring character type as well, not just mm. story pattern. What do you think about that? I think that's what it is. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around sometimes, but almost everything is a trope, to be honest. It's just how far you go. I think, with the trope or how few you use that make it more obvious. Like the Ice Queen is a trope. And I think a lot of people have an idea of what the Ice Queen is. Yeah. And, you know, those could also be considered archetypes as well. Archetypes. I mean, that that's what I mean. There's sort of a blur here because a trope could also be a non-character related pattern. For example, the theft of a treasure to initiate the thriller pattern. We could also pull up a definition of trope. Ah, a significant or recurrent theme, a motif, a commonplace, recognizable plot element, theme, or visual cue that conveys something in the arts. Yeah, I don't even think other people know what trope means. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> glad that we're not the only ones who have no idea how you actually define it. Right. I just like the idea of the reoccurring pattern, because if it's used enough, you will recognize it as a viewer, as a reader, as a consumer. You will know that it's been there before. Yeah, it's kind of an intuitive aspect to storytelling and stories. And if you guys have 
a correction or a more specified definition. I want to hear that too. We can call it something else. Yes, but we won't. So yes, tell <laughs> us about this trope. <laughs> but we won't. <laughs> <laughs> so this one, like Jen said, is nuanced. And I'm very curious to see why you decided to do this one. Because I think it's interesting. And like I said, it could also be an archetype. Because this character specifically seems to reoccur as a non-native woman going into a jungle-like atmosphere. And not only in it, but traveling through it either deeper mm. or descending descent yeah it has to be some sort of travel that's involved getting into the more wild parts of that jungle and mm. the reason she has to be non-native is because it's not a familiar territory there's something new to be learned about herself as well as the outside world mm. would you agree with that absolutely the very beginning when this trope was used i would call it a subcategory of the damsel in distress as in everything yeah, in a patriarchal society where there's adventure in a jungle, it's going to be male dominant and the woman is going to be the object of desire. So what's she going to do? She's going to be panicking and screaming the whole time or <laughs> she needs to be saved. That's the damsel in distress. Mm -hmm. I know that's what I do when I go to the jungle. I just start screaming, <laughs> screaming immediately. And expecting someone to rescue me. Absolutely. So it's somewhat of that archetype, but it's going to evolve, as you will hear in our discussion, to maybe I would call a capable explorer. Nice. What would you call it? Is that something close to? Yeah, I mine was a bit more fluffy. I called her, and this is not quite right, but I called the, in this specific case, like the end uh, result, the clever action star, ah. or intelligent and physically prowessed yeah so it's not just the cleverness it's also physically able and capable exactly what you see males do in the jungle like i would say white males do in the jungle today mm. in our movies and stories that's where the women's at now so that's good yeah i might also clarify because in my research of this archetype there's also the jungle queen and we are not talking mm. about that archetype either because that's a different situation it is usually a non-native woman who mm gets stuck in the jungle or her protectors leave her and what she has to do to survive or to compensate is usually dominate the native mm. people there or overtake something or pretend to be something that she's not in order to intimidate mm. i mean that's cool too and we could talk about that archetype at some point but we're we're not discussing that situation or that story pattern in this episode yeah, yeah. definitely a fun one but not what we're looking at cool Do you want to tell us a bit more about the aspects of the trope? Okay, yeah, yeah. So let's break down the elements and what we are identifying as the characteristics of the pattern and then what the character needs in order to fulfill the pattern. Perfect. Although, because since I said I was going to ask you, maybe this would be a good time to ask, why were you interested in this particular trope and archetype? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> I saw the last movie that we'll be discussing and it like triggered all kinds of good positive things and I, it just really made me see the genre in a different way. I mean, it started with a couple other movies that we won't be discussing, but movies that we talked about early on. Dora, the live action film, was an example of that. But these movies, I feel like, bring something new with these character tropes and this character type. And to me, it's exciting. I mean, action films are my favorite genre. And 
I don't get to watch as much of it as I like because it tends not to have strong female characters. And this was like such a surprise to me that we could see a story that takes place in a past time and also has a, a woman in it and also has a woman in it that is intellectually and physically capable and a woman who isn't cold or distant, which is sort of typically how we see the strong woman is being cold, calculated, distant. And she has to do that in order to like be good at what she does. I don't know. It's some bullshit like that. <laughs> so this is the first time I feel like I've seen this character type and like really come out of its shell if a character type can do that. Yes. And I thought it would be fun to talk about because it's cool. I like it. <laughs> I don't know. That's my real answer. No, I, like I it. agree. I agree. And when you first proposed it, I was like, all right, I guess there's a few movies that do that. And then during my research, I was like, oh, man, if you look mm -hmm. at this evolution, this particular archetype evolution, what a change. I mean, anything you write with a period piece specific atmosphere the female, if it's historically accurate, is not going to be entitled at the least, right? If anything, she's going to be cargo on this journey mm -hmm. where something is being found or somebody's being chased and she's just going to be the object of desire to be saved. So like, how do you handle that trope over mm -hmm. time? What has changed despite it still being a quote unquote period piece? Because I think all three, well, minus one, is going to be sort of, you know, before modern era. Yeah. So I like that. I like that there was so many to look at too. This is definitely a trope. I would have never known unless you brought it up. So good choice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I, I think you put that perfectly. I mean, if you were to suss it down to one aspect, it's seeing a female character go from being cargo to being, what's the opposite? I don't know. The train <laughs> that carries the cargo. I don't know. But it's really true. Like that's the feeling that you have in these early aspects of the character and in a lot of movies and media about women from before this time and this time. So I think they put that perfectly. Great. Awesome. But yes, before we jump into our movie selections, the ones that we chose to make a good example of that evolution, I do want to I do want to look at maybe psychology-wise and story-wise how the two elements are defined in the pattern just so you listeners out there could maybe identify this trope and this archetype better if you're watching a movie and you're like, "Ah, oh, that totally fits because of this 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 and this." Yeah. So the two elements I want to first define kind of in this pattern are the the women. The women. Ew. The women. You can't define women. <laughs> Who does that? And the jungle, what they both do for the story. So the woman and jump in, Jen, if you have, because you're going to have good descriptions of this too. In the psychology of the story pattern, they represent the utmost civilized, the most removed from the wilds of the jungle, so that means fragility, that means innocence, usually beauty is associated with that, and the most desirable for the male gaze. And if you're looking at these tropes, it's usually going to be a male writer, a male creator. So historically wise, like we already mentioned, the woman was not part of the adventure. They were not the action heroes. They did not do travel unless it was to what relocate for a family or to... Yeah. I don't even know what else there was. It's It, it was really just to relocate them. So mm. it would be that they were cargo. And if they went into the jungle, it was sometimes by accident. It was maybe mm. because they threw a fit and didn't want to leave their man. I don't know. You know, there wasn't <laughs> it wasn't like, oh, I'm part of the journey. You know, let right. me go. Yeah. Would you agree with all of that? Again, these are the early stages. This is like the very early part of the trope 
where if women were involved, it was the object of desire to be saved. And they were usually there by accident. Right. And yeah. And I would say they are completely naive to what is in store for them or about anything, really, but especially about the jungle. Absolutely. Which is not their yeah. fault, because like I said, we're talking about the yeah. non-native woman. Of course, the yeah. native woman would know exactly what to do and would be absolutely fine. But we're talking about the cultured female Anglo woman in high mm -hmm. society, typically, because they've been civilized, quote unquote, civilized. So they belong nowhere near a jungle. So the circumstances yeah. of them being there is usually pretty odd or unique or mm -hmm. problematic. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so that's where we begin. When when is Melissa McCarthy gonna do her comedic movie about being lost in the jungle with Sandra Bullock? <laughs> it's the next logical step. I'm waiting, Melissa. I'm waiting. That would be fun. I wanna see that. Right? Yeah, two female comics in a jungle? What? Yeah. <laughs> that is fresh material right there. <laughs> I mean women, yes. Like that's like some of the like Abbott and Costello, I think they did a jungle movie where they went to the jungle and like you know it's racist because there's like natives and they like it's horrible and it's funny at times because they're a comedic duo but like man to really take that as two modern day female writers actors comedians etc would be really great to see It'd be awesome yes good yeah. yes i'm glad that we've proposed that yes anyone wants to run with it go ahead <laughs> yes <laughs> please do <laughs> So anything else to add to that beginning definition of the woman there? Okay. So keeping that in mind, let's look then at the jungle, the next element that's super important to the pattern. It could be any wild part of the world, but it tends to be the jungle because it makes the most sense as its opposite of the white civilized woman, mm -hmm. because it is the most chaotic, the most mm -hmm. untamed, uncivil, unknown, unexplored. Dangerous. Dangerous. Yes. And usually if it's the male gaze it means that the the most feared of the white male is going to be in this jungle too. And unfortunately, mm. that is the racist bit. That's usually the native tribes that are there. Their biggest fear, and this was used in early comics, is that their females are going to be captured by the tribe's men. <laughs> yeah. Not even anybody else. Just the women. Yeah. Which is so, wow. You know? But it was used wow. so much. I mean, if you, I was looking yeah. at all these articles and there were so many comics that used that trope. I almost got a little sick after a while. I'm like, come on. This yeah. is too much. I don't, yeah. I don't know. It's just a passing thought. But I mean, even in the early days of cinema, when they had all of these cowboy movies coming out, like we talked about last time, they still had a couple female characters, not enough, but a few that broke the mold and actually did something else and weren't actually stereotyped so much. It's amazing to me that they can make so many films of one kind of genre which we'll talk about a little bit more after this and and not have more diversity in the character trope i think it's really amazing actually how bad that is yeah i'm sure the statistics of the viewers had a lot to do with that too they were targeting you know white males they're assuming that if the pattern works that their viewers are going to just want that and only that which is not true that's absolutely yeah. not true but maybe they were afraid to take any risk what were we going to say sorry no, I was just going to say, I mean, that's what I would think they do with the Western, too. It's like what, you know, maybe it's the the nature of the genre that this is like a more of a B-movie theme versus a mainstream theme that we have this kind of issue. Ah, good point. Yeah. The B-movies mm. were just mm. being recycled and 
turned out pretty quickly. Well, but then you would think that's the place to make them to take the most risk, isn't it? Because you have really yeah, nothing to I, lose. <laughs> I don't know. Doesn't make any sense. You're right. That's not an excuse. No sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Maybe for these reasons and other reasons, this was the typical pattern of women in the jungle. But psychology-wise, I think it makes sense because it is the most high of society being captured by what we fear to be the most low of society, Mm. which today is not true. And we can talk about how this trope is now looking at the intelligent parts of both of these elements, which is like women are most Mm. capable of anything a man can do. And the jungle brings out new insight, new information, Mm. and the boon of not only the internal knowledge, but an external knowledge that can be brought back to the world, to like, let's say the civilized world, which is not in our definition civilized anymore because now it is the civilized that is chaotic and nature that Mm. is in balance. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. So I'm going to share with you listeners what I think the elements of the woman in the jungle trope are. I won't listen. It's just for the listeners. You look away. (laughs) I am not listening. (laughs) Okay. So first, there's usually either hostile or helpful locals, meaning the native of the jungle is going to know more information than any non-native, obviously. And they can either deter or encourage or be somewhat helpful in that journey through the jungle. Feel free to add anything to this. Would you agree that's one of the elements that tends to pop up? Okay. And in some cases, both hostile and helpful. Ah, yes. Agreed. Yeah, because like we said, the dynamics of the natives are just like a civilized society. They're going to be different. They're going to have different opinions about what to do with outsiders. Maybe they want people to come and help them. Maybe they want people to just stay away. Everyone's going to be different. Yeah. Okay, element number two. There is usually some sort of wild beast or something to represent that most wild part of the jungle, the most untamed. Mm-hmm. And maybe the argument can be made that it's it's the natives, but I, I wouldn't say it's that. I would usually say it's an animal of some sort or a big obstacle. It could be mythical. It could be magical or just a natural element that we didn't recognize before, yeah. like an earthquake that only comes up when you pass a certain cave. I don't know. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so something big and blocking the character's path. It could be pseudoscience, too. There's a little hint. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're all foreshadowing our movies yes (laughs) so element number three a fog or thick vegetation again this is specific for the jungle because if it's the most unknown part of the world there's gonna be some sort of veil on your vision metaphorically Mm. and physically and as you go deeper into the jungle or further down or further up whatever the direction is you're moving toward your boon your treasure Things are going to be more out of sight, more hazy, more confusing, which is what we like in conflict and drama. It totally works, and we want this. So we're going to talk about the veil, either physically, like some sort of fog, or metaphorically, like what's blocking their new knowledge. Mm. Element number four, which is almost in everything, actually, is the object of desire, the treasure, the boon, what you're going to gain from the journey. And that could be a variety of things. It's not necessarily one thing or another. Aha. Yes, exactly. Aha. (laughs) Laura Croft over here. Aha. Aha. (laughs) And Laura Croft almost fits this trope. I'm so like, ah, she's so close to fitting the trope. But yeah, in the jungle, it's fun because it could be an object of really foreign and magical object 
or it could be mm-hmm. new knowledge. If it's the scientist yeah. explorer, what they usually want is knowledge of something they're researching mm-hmm. in the jungle or yeah. viewing for the first time and have to prove that they've mm-hmm. seen it. Whatever that is, that's the boon. That's the thing that you want to take yeah. away from the journey. Okay, last one. The romantic or familial stability gained by the end. And if we're talking about the female as the main character in this pattern, it tends to be that there's some sort of rocky relationship, usually with a masculine element, whether that's a father, a romantic interest. It could be her own masculine characteristics that needed to come out in the journey that she needs to contend with. But whatever it is, it tends to be a masculine lack that is fixed or that is gained or that is, I don't know, made peace with. Okay, what do you think about this one? So, yes, I agree. In these films we are going to get kind of a mixed bag for romantic or familial stability. But I would say that it's not exactly what you said, but I would say that there is, that is a theme. Whether or not it's good or bad is different, but the theme of it at the end does pop up in all three of these films. And I think that's probably what you meant, right? Yeah, meaning it's yeah. not always a good thing. You're right. right. And especially yeah. early on, you're you're kind of disgusted that she needs the romantic interest. But further down the line, you get things like the inner recognition of the masculine, which yes. if you're a Westerner woman who's never been to the jungle before, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be in touch with your masculine elements. So that's it's a good thing there. Yeah, absolutely. Did I miss anything? Any any other characteristics that come up in this trope pattern? I don't think so. I mean, maybe they'll come up as we go along, but so far, that all sounds good to me. I like that this trope is not bound by a genre. It can literally be in all these different genres, and I think that's so cool because the jungle is sort of the wild place, you know, the untamed, and so you can find all sorts of things in it, whether it's science, pseudoscience, fantasy, even just action. There's so many different things you can find there. Agreed. And for I even wrote down some examples of movies that fit this trope. Hmm. Dora is totally one of them, by the way. Yeah. All you, we're not going to actually talk about Dora, but yeah. you listeners, if you are interested in this trope, Dora is a good one for that. Such a good movie. It is so fun. It's so fun. Uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth. That's hmm. the Jules Verne story. I was trying to think of, uh, I thought of a movie just like a couple of minutes ago, and I was like, how did I not think of that before? And I don't remember the name of the movie. Um... But it has Natalie Portman in it. I think it's Natalie Portman. And she it's actually a jungle, an alien jungle, but it's on Earth. That's not Annihilation, is it? Annihilation, that's it. Yeah, that works. Annihilation's yeah. one of them. I love it. And it has all of the elements we just talked about, all of them. Yeah, and you're right. That's more, not horror, but is it horror? Maybe it's horror. I mean, it's horrific, but it's not necessarily, <laughs> it's not your typical horror. I would say it's like thriller at the very, very edge of horror nice okay yeah yeah that's a good one i even wrote down crocodile dundee totally comedy too comedy of course so if you all think of others send us the list because yeah it's amazing how many actually fit this trope and yeah if you recognize some that we didn't you can share it and put it in our face be like ha you missed this one i'll be like okay sorry thank you (laughs) our bad Our thesis for our episode in which we summarize what we've learned from our research and our discussions and which you can disagree with after you hear the entire episode. Totally. (laughs) But it seems to be that our thesis for this episode 
is that the non-native woman who moves further through the untamed jungle is discovering new knowledge, inner and outer, especially moving through each layer. So now that we have a lot of good information about the trope, we're going to talk about the three examples that we have that we think fit the timeline of change. And that sounds really mysterious, but it's obviously not. It's just like the timeline of change. First, we're going to talk about what we're calling the beginning, which is King Kong, and specifically Anne Darrow, or Fay Ray, who plays her, from the original film. Then we're going to look at what we're calling the next step, which is Jurassic Park, The Lost World, and Dr. Sarah Harding. Sarah! Sarah Harding! And then last but not least, we'll discuss what we're calling the quintessential, which is Jungle Cruise, Dr. Lily Hewton. And awesome that two of these three characters are doctors, which I think is fantastic. So let me introduce the first source. That is what we're calling the beginning. That's King Kong. King Kong came out in 1933 and it was written by James Creelman and Ruth Rose. The directors were Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shodzak. I'm going to go with that. And specifically, I wanted to mention who the main female character and actor is. So in this one, it's Fay Ray, and she plays Andero, who is pretty much the helpless heroine. She, I call her the screaming woman, because that's all she does is scream and like writhe around yeah. and scream. <laughs> So I think also King Kong is such a well-known film. People know of it because they see the imagery and because it's referenced so much. But I don't know how many people have actually watched it. We watched it. And I think, Charlotte, you can give us a good description of the plot or the summary of the plot. Because, again, I think people know of it, but not necessarily have seen it or know what it's about. Agreed. And actually, the what was... The newer one, 2005, 2004? Yeah, something like that. Oh, I should have written it down. Jack Black and Adrian Brody. Yeah. Plot-wise, everything is very, very similar to the original. I was kind of surprised by that. Yeah. And it's long, too. I mean, King Kong, for the time and now, I think, was pretty long. And so is the remake. It's a long film. Which, I don't know if the 1933 version had to be that long. <laughs> it didn't. It did not have to be that long. <laughs> okay. So yes, if you know this plot, it's it's pretty similar throughout all the versions here. So we're in New York in the 1930s. That's Depression era to sort of set the scene. Filmmaker Denham wants to voyage into the most remote part of the jungle to capture something exotic on film, because that's what he's known for, apparently. And though Denham doesn't want to, quote, haul a woman around, he understands that the public, quote, must have a pretty face to look at. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he must find a young woman to act in this film. But it is pointed out to Denham that, quote, is a different thing to take a girl into danger, which explains why there's no female actors willing to take the job. Hmm. So it's the day before setting sail to this destination, and they don't have an actor. So Denham just goes into the street and looks for a girl. And luckily, there's Anne, who we learn, the character Anne, who's sort of roaming around this food stand because we are to understand that she's destitute. She's hungry. She has nowhere to go. It's desperation at this point. So when he proposes this job, saying like, we'll feed you. It's money. It's fame. It's glory. That's all you need to know. Hmm. She accepts. I mean, in my opinion, it's not like she didn't want the job. It's also 
Yeah. She looked excited for it, but I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't know if these are the best circumstances for that. And Denim doesn't actually explain what the job is. <laughs> of course not. So, okay. <laughs> if you are a young person listening to this, obviously, you know that that is never a good idea. And I, I don't know if that's where that scam came from, but it seems like it, where they have these people that come out and are like, hey, you could do modeling or you could do acting. It's like, <sighs> problematic. Don't do it. Don't get on a boat with somebody you don't know. Exactly. This is that situation where yeah. it's, everything was veiled to begin with, and his words are not a good indication of what's going to happen mm-hmm. to her. Anyway, so that's the premise. So after weeks at sea, because they voyage off that next morning, the first shipmate Jack and Anne find themselves in love, of course. <laughs> and at some point, Denim reveals that their destination is this mysterious skull island. And he doesn't actually say it forthright, but he hints that there's something... Ominous. Ominous. <laughs> As a dog barks in the background. <laughs> there is something ominous waiting for them on the island. But nobody seems to be too worried about that. But So once they arrive on the island, the first thing that they do is disembark and accidentally interrupt this local tribe's ritual. And it looks like a sacrificial ritual mm-hmm. because there's this woman in the middle who's being decorated like a bride. Yes. But when they see the white men there, they sort of stop the ritual. And there's this discussion because one of their crew members knows the language, which seems kind of unbelievable, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and what's exchanged is a proposal. The tribe's man says, I, we will exchange like five of our women for that white woman because mm-hmm. Anne is with them. She like went down with them, even though everybody was like, uh, that's not a good idea. Maybe we should see what's on the island. <laughs> nope. Mm-hmm. Jenna's like, take the camera. Let's just, we're going to capture what we see. Mm-hmm. So fearing for Anne's safety, they go back to the ship. They say no deal. But of course, later that night, the tribesmen come on board and sneak her off. They capture her. Mm-hmm. Hence the capture, damsel in distress. Mm-hmm. They drag her right across this giant wall to these two <laughs> posts. <laughs> None of this is feeling good. Mm-hmm. And they tie her up there. This is the sacrifice in order to understand that there is a monstrous beast that they call Kong. King Kong to them because it's their god. Mm-hmm. And she is to be the bride to be sacrificed to him. As one does. As one does. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, it's a giant gorilla that comes up, takes her away. Although he does seem more enchanted by her than... Mm-hmm. Assuming that she's going to be a meal. So that's good. At least he won't kill her right away. (laughs) There's that. He begins taking her through the jungle. So meanwhile, sorry, I'm going to go a little faster here. Meanwhile, the crew realizes Anne has been taken and a handful of them decide to follow Kong in order to get her back. But of course, they are battling some really weird wild creatures, including dinosaurs. Like they meet a stegosaurus. Um, Um, Treacherous land. They have to cross this foggy lake, that, and they make like this makeshift raft, which was pretty clever of them. Yeah. But then, of course, when they catch up to Kong, Kong starts killing them off. Mm-hmm. No good. And the one survivor, of course, is Jack, who's trying to get to Anne. And Anne is, meanwhile, still screaming her head off. <laughs> just... And Kong has to battle a few creatures too, because apparently, I mean, they're they're treating her like she's his toy. Like, yeah. no, this is my toy. You can't touch my toy. I'm just gonna like beat the crap out of this T-Rex so he doesn't yep. touch my toy. Yep. <laughs> Which they change in the later version. They try to make it more personal, but that's totally how it feels in this one. Yes, I agree. But Jack does get to her. Kong is distracted, so they start climbing down this rock face, and they eventually get back to the big fence. They lock it, and they're like, okay, we're relieved. We're all alive, even though we're not. A lot of us died. (laughs) 
And of course Dunham, the idiot he is, is like, well, nobody's gonna believe that we saw this giant gorilla, so let's take him back with us mm-hmm. to New York so we can prove it. And I don't, I don't even understand how this happened, but they somehow got King Kong knocked out onto the ship back to New York. That's mm-hmm. all you need to know. It's funny. It's like almost like they could have done that with a giant dinosaur. <gasps> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. Anyway, so back in New York, the surviving crew is there for this big presentation of Kong. And we learn that Anne and Jack are now engaged. But of course, Kong escapes because he's a giant gorilla with immense force. And mm-hmm. we are to understand that he's looking for Anne. He starts rummaging through the city looking for blonde ladies because he's looking for Anne. And he knows that, you know, not just any blonde lady is Anne. There's even a scene where he picks up this random, like, blonde lady and is like, oh, you're not Anne. And he just, like, tosses her. (laughs) Throws her away. So So it's interesting that the beauty aspect of it, a specific beauty, Mm -hmm. is a thing in most King Kong movies where he recognizes that there's just this one version of Anne that Mm -hmm. he wants. And eventually he does find her again mm-hmm. and is taken this time to the top of the Empire State Building. And this is usually the scene that people remember, which is yeah. Kong swatting at airplanes on top of the Empire State Building. Yeah. And of course, the airplanes get him eventually. Mm-hmm. And in this moment of looking at Anne for one more time, he topples to his death. And I should probably mention the famous last line that Denim, he's like pushing through the crowd when Kong's now dead at the bottom. And some guy's like, oh, it's the airplanes that got him. And Denim's like, no. Was beauty that killed the beast? Blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Anne and Jack are reunited, so it ends with a happily ever after, quote unquote, with her masculine being mm. the reward yeah. like we mentioned in the pattern. So that does fit in this pattern. That was a great summary. That's Now you all can save yourselves three hours and <laughs> you know everything that happens in the film that's important. Uh, well, and I think... You know, we we were going to talk a bit about the characters and we put together four items to discuss. And I think that through your description, I think a lot of people would be able to to figure these out, which is good. The first one I put was her innocence level slash the factor. And that I think is obvious in this case, right? I mean, as you said, Anne is going in completely naive. She doesn't know exactly what they're doing or where they're going. And she... I felt like she was being pushed into it, but I also recognized that she was also like, okay. And I was like, mm, no, sweetheart, absolutely not. And being desperate. She even mentions at the beginning, I have no family here, maybe an uncle that she's not able to contact, no job because the studio, she's done background acting, but the studio has been closed for a while. This is the depression. Everybody is destitute, no food, no place to live. And if some dude who looks well-dressed comes up to you and says, I've got money fame and glory say yes you know it's gonna be really hard to turn that down for anybody not just the blonde female female woman (laughs) i just say that the blonde female innocent (laughs) i think what you're talking about is what item two is which is her motivation to journey into this jungle she's not just poor she's destitute and it is during the depression and all these things and so the lure to be the star of a new film a new picture that she gets to go on a journey, she'll get to make money, she'll be in a movie. Those are all pretty nice incentives. That's like her naive aspect. But her motivation really is just having money and being able to be fed these other things that people don't have a lot of in the Depression. What's your name? And Daryl. Fine. I've got a job for you. Costumes on the ship will fit you. 
Broadway shops are still open. I can get some clothes for you there. Come on. But, but what is it? It's money and adventure and fame. It's the thrill of a lifetime and a long sea voyage that starts at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. No, wait. I, I don't understand. You must tell me. I do want the job, so, but I, I can't. Oh, I see. No, you've got me wrong. This is strictly business. Well, I only wanted sure. to... Sure, sure you did. I got a little excited and I forgot you didn't understand. I wanted to mention that in all three of our movie selects, there seems to be this scene. I really appreciate this because even Anne in this movie sort of gets over the whole, like, oh, I'm, I really do need money to feel like this excitement, like something new is mm. happening. It's an adventure and I'm able to be on it, which again, women weren't really allowed to be on it unless they were cargo. And here is this director saying like, you can act in this film. That's an active role. So in this movie and every movie that we've selected, there's this scene where someone attempts to dissuade them, mm. dissuade the female woman. Oh God, why do I keep saying that? The, the white woman. woman. <laughs> There's the white woman going into the jungle. Somebody has to try to stop it. You that girl Denham picked up last night, aren't you? Yes. I think this is awfully exciting. I've never been on a ship before. Well, I've never been on one with a woman before. I guess you don't think much of women on ships, do you? No, they're a nuisance. Well, I'll try not to be. You've been on the way already. Bring that ladder aboard. Well, you better stay below. What? The whole voyage? obviously they're in love <laughs> so in love but that's that's the dissuasion and i'm going to mention in every movie that we talk about i'm going to mention that scene because i like it somebody cool. has to try to stop her right from yeah. venturing where she's not supposed to be and i know that all of these movies basically only have one female character but all of the people that are dissuading them are men i'm just saying indeed cool i'm glad you recognize that that'll be interesting to to hear those as we go through each film so our next point is her later cleverness level. So how Anne survives and adapts to Kong in order to survive, basically until her man comes to get her. So for me, one of the scenes where she actually like has a voice is near the end when they're at the show and they're going to bring Kong out and she's talking to her husband, her boyfriend. She's like, this is a bad idea. She's like super nervous and she's like, we shouldn't be doing this. This is bad. And he kind of is like, nah, it'll be fine. She, he's chained up. Everything's fine. Stop being crazy. <laughs> and <laughs> of course, it isn't fine. And he like immediately breaks free. That I mean, that's kind of the boon, partially, is that she's brought back knowledge with her. I, right? Is that part of the boon? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, it, you're right. It's hard, it's hard to grasp at anything that she's learned because she's not really an entitled character. But yeah. I kind of forgot about that moment. She does recognize that this should have never happened. And the fact that she's so mm. close to him again is not a good thing because he's going to recognize yeah. her and want her again. It, you know, yeah. And she was a witness throughout the film of what Khan could do. She saw him battle dinosaurs in front of her. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, she of all people knows exactly why this is a bad idea. But she's not a character that has any privilege or standing. I mean, she's the nuisance on board, you know? Yeah. So the knowledge she gains and brings back isn't heeded. And because of that, it's a nightmare. <laughs> Jeez. As a side note, the 2005 mm -hmm. King Kong version, where Anne is a little bit more clever about the situation, especially upon the return. Mm -hmm. She's been through so much and she's so traumatized that she has nothing to do with Jack Black's 
what he does with Kong. She's like, nope, I'm out. But what she does when she realizes that Kong has escaped and everybody is being hurt, she actually does this really brave thing, which is like, oh, I know what will stop him because he's looking for me. She goes and confronts him. It's more of like this moment Mm. of stop doing what you're doing. I'm right here. I love it. That's entitlement. That's a good way to evolutionize the story for the female character. True. Uh, She is actually taking a stand with the creature or the gorilla in this case. Yeah. She understands the wild now. Yeah, I guess that's, they're still bringing back of knowledge. The knowledge is just slightly different in that case. Here she knows that it's not a good idea. And there she knows it's not a good idea too. But she's able to also know what will stop it. Yes, agreed. And then last but not least for this part, the familial or love stability gained, as you put very well. Do you want to talk about that part? This is going to be the bummer factor in this version because it is. it is. It's Yay. like, oh, you're, you've been rescued by the man you're going to marry. I mean, if her inner insight was fueled in this adventure, we don't see mm. it. We don't get to see any of that. And it may have. She may be internally much stronger, but that's not. I mean, she's still screaming at the end when in New York he takes her again. It's the same pattern. Nothing really changes there. But because she goes through the adventure alive and she gets out alive, she gets her man. Yeah. Jack comes up to the Empire State Building, hugs her. She's safe now. That's her stability. And like I said, it's not a good thing. It's not really great, but it is what it is. (laughs) Yeah. It could be worse, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Gets more exciting later on. Right. In other films. Agreed. So we want to talk about, obviously, the other major factor of this trope, which is the jungle, the environment. Because this one fits the pattern as well, really pretty spot on. The hostile natives, I would categorize this Mm -hmm. movie under. Because they capture Anne. I mean, I guess they tried to bargain at the beginning, but that's that's rude. <laughs> so it is, yeah, it's hostile. But we don't get very much of the tribe anyway. It is more of an antagonist element. Mm-hmm. Pretty racist because that's because they don't do much. Very. Uh, but, the, oh, I did put this note, which is that they don't actually attempt to do much to stop the crew from getting mm-hmm. Anne or from taking King Kong. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like they're really active after the initial kidnapping of Anne. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. So they had a part to play in the story, and once that was done, they were just kind of like background. Which makes sense a little bit, because like they made their sacrifice to Kong, so they like held up their side of the bargain. So maybe they felt pretty safe in not being involved anymore. And then the white people took the gorilla away, so they were like, great, now we don't have to sacrifice anybody, <laughs> you know? Uh, item two, the wild beast, obviously, <laughs> that's blocking the character's path. Could you get more obvious than a giant gorilla? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so Kong is the main obstacle. If we're considering Anne and Jack being the main characters and Dunham being the main mm. characters, they're either trying to get something from him or trying to take him as the reward mm. or surviving him because he's murdered a bunch of their men. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all about him as being the symbol of the unknown, of the terrible, mm-hmm. of the hostile. Yet they really want him to make money. Interesting twist there. Should we talk about the other obstacles? Sure. We can mention them. <laughs> what is it? Stegosaurus. Stegosaurus. Like we said, there's a stegosaurus at the beginning. Mm-hmm. There's a T-Rex that Kong fights. Um, mm-hmm. well, I mean, whatever it is, when they're getting deeper into the jungle, because Kong has this cliffside that I think he calls home like at the very top of the planet basically yeah he likes the height that totally makes sense hence king kong right the highest part of whatever land you rule you got to be at the top of it 
That's right. And the men moving through all of these obstacles, getting further into the jungle, are finding the obstacles more and more challenging to the point where they're actually killed. And Jack is the only one to find his quote-unquote boon, which is Anne. Right. It was amazing filmmaking for the day, so definitely a part of film history, uh, but a lot of very interesting and strange fight scenes between men and claymation. I think it's claymation, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. It was really cool. So there's a lot of that if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, despite it being 1933, I was kind of impressed by those visuals. Yeah. Even the element of of fog, like we said, there's something veiling the vision of the characters. There's literally fog over the lake that they have to cross. Yeah. And it felt scary. It felt like the horror element of you can't see the animal that's there that's going to eat you. You might see the shadow. You might hear them. Yeah. But suddenly you're getting eaten. Yeah. And it's it's horrific. And the noises that you hear when they crunch down on the human, you know, it's good. Yeah. It, those elements it is. totally work for horror. Yeah. I, If it's okay, I just want to read a quick quote that I thought was really illuminating. I don't know. Yes, please do. <laughs> cool. Before King Kong entered production, a long tradition of jungle filmings existed. And whether drama or documentary, some films generally adhered to a narrative pattern that followed an explorer or scientist into the jungle to test a theory only to discover some monstrous aberration in the undergrowth. In these films, scientific knowledge could be subverted at any time, and it was that that provided the genre with its vitality, appeal, and endurance. And that's actually from a book called The Jungle Origins of King Kong. So I thought that was a really good piece of information to add to the discussion. I like it. And that sounds very true. There's something about a beast, not just like the hostile natives, but something about a wild beast being the Mm -hmm. center focus of the antagonistic conflict or, you know, whatever's happening. It it sort of surrounds this representation of the wild that's exaggerated, which is why the woman as the damsel is Mm. so common in, in these jungle movies, because like, what's the opposite of that big wild beast, which is this feminine, small creature that you protect it's that juxtaposition. Yeah. It, oh, thank you. That's the word. Okay. <laughs> What's it called when you compare two things? <laughs> it's a very intriguing juxtaposition. I think the main antagonists of this film are pretty obvious. And I think we've talked about that quite a bit. I, yeah, I think Kong can be portrayed as the, as the enemy. How? How could he be the antagonist when we incited it? The white guys, not we, I'm not a white guy, um, (laughs) incited him in this way and then took him from his home and put him in a new environment. It really is sort of infuriating sometimes for me because I'm like, did we learn anything? Like, did men see this and think, yeah, we did it? (laughs) Like, you know, like we're there's just like cognitive dissonance with that to me that like who the real enemy is. I'm like, well, can you like internalize that a little bit? Like that would be good for you to internalize. Yes. (sighs) If anything, the practice of psychology and storytelling is most potent when you look at the inner struggle. It's not about the object you're taking out. It's about what you inside are learning about yourself. And that could be shared without harming anybody. That's right. Listen to her. She knows what she's talking about. (laughs) <laughs> she laughs it makes great stories when something does go wrong obviously so totally you know i mean we wouldn't have the film without it but <laughs> exactly. let's not pretend like they aren't the villains either so i'd like to read a little quote from andrew Arish, who i do not know he said 
RKO, which is the film company, RKO greenlighted Kong because of the bottom line, a formula that, quote, gorillas plus sexy women in peril equals enormous profits, unquote. And that's always true with film to some degree, but I think that really sums up everything having to do with women and female tropes and female characters like that was her role her role was to be a sexy woman in peril and that's what she did and i i can't like i love fey ray i mean she annoys the hell out of me in the movie because all she does is scream and it's so frustrating to like watch her do nothing um she does survive so that is something but like you know what i mean and it's like a movie within a movie this is how the film industry treats women to some degree and that's what we see in the film. So we feel like we have a pretty good idea of the basis of the trope. And this is, you know, the origin of it in the film world anyway. And this is what we'll compare the other two sources to. And I think that the bar is as low <laughs> as it can be. Yeah. It's pretty damn low. So it's it's only going to go uphill from here. So let's cut our way through. Would you like to use the? <laughs> she's, she's a, I can't even explain. <laughs> well, I'm entertained. I was gonna ask if you'd like to use the machete or if I should, but I think you're busy. You're you're gonna be the dinosaur. I'll be the machete holder. Oh man! Bring your bug spray, and we'll talk about all of the bug spray. By the way, I feel like you may have heard that I need a lot of bug spray. I need all. Of the bug spray. <laughs> so our next film is, of course, The Next Step, Dr. Sarah Harding, The Lost World, Jurassic Park. That came out in 1997. The screenplay was by David Cope, and it was based on the book, The Lost World, by Michael Crichton, which is not anything like the second book. I mean, they're very different. And it was, of course, directed by the same director that did the first film, which is Steven Spielberg. Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe not. <laughs> And the actor of the female character and others where necessary are Julianne Moore, of course, lovely, beautiful, we love you, and Jeff Goldblum. Do you want to tell us the summary? Yes, specifically because we appreciated Julianne Moore's character in this. Mm. Because I guess some of the other Jurassic Park movies may fit this trope as well, but yeah. Julianne Moore has the most scream, scream time. <laughs> uh, that works too. <laughs> She's so clever. <laughs> <laughs> she has the most screen ah, time. <laughs> okay, so four years after the events of Jurassic Park, Hammond, I'm going to assume that you listeners know the basics of Jurassic Park. Yeah. So Hammond summons mathematician Ian Malcolm back to revisit his dinosaurs on the island of Isla Sorna. She says it's so pretty. Oh, thank you. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Hammond explains that his nephew plans on taking the company Gen X, if you remember the company, away from him because I guess they're going bankrupt or something. And he's concerned that his nephew will take the animals from the island in order to make a profit. So it's it's good that Hammond is understanding that the animals shouldn't be removed. Yeah. I mean, he was the idiot to actually make the park in the first place. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. But in the second one, at least he's appreciating that they need to survive and they need to be untouched by humans. But anyway, what he's wanting to ask Malcolm is if he would be part of this team to go back to the island and observe safely on the outer rings of the island where the herbivores are to make notes, basically, is what he's asking. 
And Malcolm is, hell no. He's, he's nowhere <laughs> ready for that after his trauma. Mm -hmm. However, Malcolm reconsiders when he learns that Hammond has asked his paleontologist girlfriend to be part of the team and that she's already there. Which is messed up. <laughs> yeah, that is messed up. So with an equipment specialist and a documentarian, Malcolm travels to the island to retrieve Sarah. Dr. Sarah Harding. Sarah! Sarah Harding! So when Malcolm arrives, Sarah is reluctant to leave as she has already learned more about her field than she has from, quote, scratching around rock and bone. But things take an urgent turn when, one, they find that Malcolm's daughter stowed away and is with them now. And two, that Hammond's crazy nephew has already arrived with his team and are starting to trap the dinosaurs. So Sarah Harding's people decide to save the dinosaurs by letting them out of their cages. But in the process, they accidentally destroy all the technology that they would need to radio help. Of course. The documentarian during all of this chaos, who is also an activist, decides to try to save this baby T-Rex that's been tied up as bait. When I rewatched this movie, I was like, this was the accident right here. I mean, I know it's really mm -hmm. sad to see a, a T-Rex in pain, but I'm like, dude, you're taking a baby T-Rex to your trailer. I'm like, that was the mistake there. And I can't believe I didn't see that when I first watched this movie. Hmm. He takes the baby to Sarah to fix. And even Sarah's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're doing this. Because <laughs> the baby's calling for his parents. And his parents are yeah. grown-up T-Rexes. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, while she's patching him up, the T-Rex parents arrive. And there's this really nice moment where Sarah gives the baby back, who's now bandaged up and is going to be fine. But of course, the T-Rex mm -hmm. parents don't know. Like, they're not going to be like, oh, okay, we forgive you because you fixed our baby. <laughs> and instead, holding like this grudge that we feel is pretty obvious when the T-Rex come back and attack the trailer. <laughs> so Sarah, who was like really gung-ho about this idea because she's in the safety of herbivores rather than like predators, which is her specialty, by the way. She studies predators. Mm -hmm. But I think she understood that the island hold these really horrific dinosaurs that are going to eat her yeah in a second everybody understands that they've made a huge mistake in calling these carnivores to the outsides of the island where everybody thought they were safe yeah so the two teams who are now both on panic mode because they have no way of being rescued they decide to come together the idea is that there's still a radio in the center of the island it could be enough to contact the islanders who are ready to go and rescue them so uh, on the way to the center of the island, these two teams are now together. They get ambushed by a T-Rex again. Of course. They get separated. And the bad guys start going through this really, this is great, this really tall grass. <laughs> oh my god, it's this scene. <laughs> Which happens to be the ideal spot for raptors. <laughs> yeah, raptor field. Horror element works really well here because the viewer doesn't yeah. see the raptors. They just see the men being pulled down. You can hear the crunching and the screaming and blah. <laughs> it's kind of awesome. But Sarah's team, meanwhile, is able to just rush through the grass. They're okay. They get closer to the center of the island because somebody's injured. The documentarian decides to push on quicker. He's like, I, we're so close. I just, I'm going to run and I'm going to call in for help. And he does. He's actually successful with that. But Malcolm, Sarah, and the daughter are still lagging behind. And unfortunately, when they get to the base, there's raptors right there and they start attacking the three of them. But despite the direness of the situation, all three of them have something really courageous to show. There's a little bit of screaming, but as far as anyone's concerned, they're handling it really well. Yeah. Even the daughter has this moment of doing her gymnastics thing and kicking a raptor. Mm -hmm. They may be in a dangerous situation, but I think they've learned something, despite it being the center in the most dangerous part of the island. 
And it works because the helicopter lands. You think everything is now like a relief. <laughs> but we have act two mm -hmm. because on their way out, Malcolm and Sarah are watching as Hammond's nephew is taking a T-Rex adult and the T-Rex baby back to the city with them. <laughs> Insane. Where have we seen this before? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. It sounds completely new to me. Bring the jungle to the civilized world. And it's so hilarious because even the ship that's carrying the dinosaurs doesn't survive. Everybody on the ship is killed. <laughs> it's really sad. It is so horrific. <laughs> the T-Rex adult is now loose in the city. Luckily, again, cool-headed. This is great. Malcolm and Sarah, especially Sarah, because she knows exactly what to do, which is find the baby and lure the T-Rex back to the ship with the baby because they've already done this before. They're now knowledgeable, yes. having gone through the jungle. They put the baby in the car and drive the baby around until the T-Rex sees it. And then they just, it's like a car chase with the T-Rex again. <laughs> yeah. And they lead it back. And then, yeah, the ship with the dinosaurs are sent back. Everyone seems to agree that the best thing to do now is just leave the dinosaurs alone on the island. They make it a preserve. Yeah. So in the character discussion, of course, our first item is her innocence level or her innocence factor at the beginning. And I, I do think it's an interesting dichotomy of her being very knowledgeable about predators and about science and paleontology and also being very naive to what exactly she's coming into and the behaviors of these predators. Good point. It's not like anything she's encountered before. It's kind of annoying to think that Malcolm is the one to tell her that because it's her male boyfriend. It's her male boyfriend. Why do I keep saying stupid, <laughs> redundant things? <laughs> I like it. You know, her male boyfriend. <laughs> it feels annoying mm -hmm. because it's a boyfriend who is also a doctor telling her you shouldn't be here. So that's like, what? Like, back off but we also have the knowledge that he's gone through this the same experience right. and he is now knowledgeable and is now just trying to warn her it's a noble goal albeit kind of annoying and it, yeah it falls in that same category right that you were talking about before there's the person that is like no don't do this and it's usually a man and in this case her boyfriend i'm just reiterating what you said and problematic because it's her boyfriend and in this case like you said the audience has a better idea than she does about what he's talking about. So you kind of are on his side, like, oh my God, woman, you gotta go home. This is gonna be bad. But also like, she's excited about the adventure. She has that excitement. And I think that goes into the next point, which is her motivation to journey into the jungle. Theoretically, the project, if they would have stayed on the outer parts of the island, her naivete wouldn't have seemed so innocent. Because she would have been successful. She already got information she didn't have before. Because like in the movie, she says, I'm tired of researching dust and bone. Yeah. In my field, this is the best that you can get. I'm going to try to be the most respectful observer that I can be. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that she's maybe as a sub archetype, she's a very caring mother type, even though she's not a literal mother. She's very motherly. Mm -hmm. And she's studying the behaviors of predators in the family environments. Right. And the fact that Malcolm's daughter sort of stows away with them also mirrors that familial intention. Yeah. I appreciated all of that. But you're right. There's still a very eerie foreboding. Like, I, I know you have good intentions mm -hmm. and you're already intelligent enough to handle all that because you've worked with predators, but you've never seen something like this before. And I think because we do know that she's not dumb in any way, her later cleverness is due to the knowledge gained in the short amount of time that she's been on the island. 
she knows predators are dangerous and she knows a lot of the behaviors of dangerous animals. I mean, like with the T-Rex scene, she knows that taking a, a baby T-Rex was a bad idea, even if it's to help it. But something she learned maybe is that there is no mutual respect now. The T-Rexes are not like okay with her having been with the baby. There's none of that reciprocation. These animals don't have that, much like maybe a lion might actually spare somebody that's saved a cub and brought it to them. I mean, I don't know, you know? I know that's exactly it. And so she's learned that in a very short amount of time. And I think that's part of her later cleverness. And she adapts very quickly. It's not like she's disappointed by that. It's more like, ah, I understand. I'm categorizing that yeah. now in my knowledge. And I still appreciate what's there because they are familial. Despite being yeah. T-Rexes, they could very much like eat their young, but they don't. They go and protect yeah. <laughs> it and seek revenge. Like, isn't that something too? They're not the monsters that hippos are, which do eat their young. <laughs> oh, no. I do like, and I might insert this scene too, not only the dissuasion scene, like you pointed out, where Baltham is like, you could have told me that Hammond called, and but also during later during that scene. Sarah, when Hammond called you, uh, why didn't you say something to me? Because I knew you would have stopped me from coming. I would have tied you to the bed. I'm sick of scratching around in rock and bone and making assumptions and deductions about the nurturing habits of animals that have been dead for 65 million years. I'm sick of it, man. Can you show up and fill my head with stories for four years? So, of course I'm going to come down here. What do you That's stories of mutilation and death. Weren't you paying attention? Oh, please. Don't treat me like I'm a grad student. I've worked around predators since I was 20 years old. Lions, jackals, hyenas, you. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's interesting because if you take the word predator, you know, and you're a woman, it kind of works both ways that she can handle herself because she's handled it all already. And I think we already touched on this, but the romantic or familial stability gained in the end, I think, is pretty apparent. Apparent? Get it? Apparent. Uh, apparent. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think it does improve the relationship between Malcolm and his daughter. And we do get to see some more of a parent-child interaction between the two, whereas before they kind of have like a sassy back and forth where she's kind of a co-parent in a way. Yeah. Like she isn't a kid. She's an adult, even though she's a kid. And in this, we get to see him actually be somewhat fatherly. Agreed. And take care of her. And that's kind of nice. It's good character growth for him, I think. It is. Yeah. In this case, despite the fact that we're following Sarah Harding very closely, it does feel more like Malcolm's character is the one that gains more familial stability than it, than Sarah. Yeah. So we could talk about the environment. There's really two environments, but obviously the main environment is the jungle. And that's the one we'll be talking about most. So hostile or helpful locals. I didn't think of one but then you wrote down one and i was like oh yeah duh it's just very brief i think yeah it's gonna be super simple because this the whole native tribe doesn't quite work because now we're in modern time and the island isn't separated it's not like in the unknown parts of the amazon for example the unknown here yeah. is the dinosaur factor that's the most wild mm -hmm. part and that was created by man recently so it doesn't it doesn't quite work but the jungle is still the jungle and there seems to be a knowledge that the islanders have there's this conversation when the environmentalist is translating and the islander is like well we're not going to go there we're not going to get that close because this is the island of the five deaths mm. even the environmentalist is like what they don't know what they're walking into either 
I really like that aspect. It's small, like you said, it's very brief, but I, I really like it that there is sort of this knowledge of the locals, even though it's a fairly recent thing that's happened. Yeah. They're not idiots like the white people are. <laughs> yeah. And they're not going in there and more and more people dying. They're like, no, don't go in there. Exactly. The second element is super obvious again, right? The wild beast that's blocking their path. Could have been a great research project. Staying on the outer island and there's only four of them. They seem to work really well together. But of course, the hostility is coming from another group of white men who want to extort the situation. Right. So, of course, the island is going to fight back. I would say the T-Rex is the biggest obstacle there. Would you agree? Yeah. Other than the obstacle being the white men. Right. Right. (laughs) Oh, oh. So, yeah. I actually had notes about the the veil or the mist or the impediment of the eyesight. Yes. When I watched it this time, it it felt like the rain factor was big. Mm. It was always raining when there was an attack or when they Mm. escape into the waterfall momentarily to run from the T-Rex. There's that moment where you're only seeing the snout of the T-Rex through the waterfall. Nice. Was there anything else that you noticed as far as like jungle vegetation or obscuring of sight? I mean, I think the the main one you already mentioned was the tall grass. Oh, yeah. Which I really, that scene is so great to watch because it's just like so visually awesome and horrifying. Right. But kind of like that scene in Signs where he's running around in the cornfield and it's like that you can't see above it really well. Like you can, you can barely see through it. And there's this kind of like panic that sets in of you can't totally see where you're going or what's happening. And then to add the element of like, a pack of raptors <laughs> taking out people all around you. It's really frightening, which is cool. I love it. No wonder the horror genre sticks to that method. It works. There's something about not knowing or not seeing the scariness that makes it scarier. Totally. So the treasure, the boon that they bring back is what we should talk about. Right. Because theoretically, for Sarah Harding at least, the boon is the knowledge of her question, which is how do dinosaur predators act in the familial setting? Right. And she kind of answers that. Even before the chaos yeah. and the, the conflict happens, she's already almost satisfied. But then the boon becomes for everybody, like you said, the understanding that this island needs to be left alone. Yeah. Does does the whole world know about the dinosaurs? I didn't think they did. Oh, shoot. Do they? Huh. <laughs> I don't remember, but I, I guess they would have been more surprised. I mean, if they didn't. I don't know. There's some great scenes with the families and the, the child and the pool. No, no, no. You're right. Because I even reading the books, I remember that was made a big deal that everybody had to keep the, mm. the first books, the first book. They had to keep the first book secret. <laughs> that, <laughs> that the characters in the first book had to keep it secret. And they went through a mm. lot of lengths yeah. to make that happen. So you're right. The second mm. installation is about the dinosaurs being exposed to the world. Which is familiar from the first movie we talked about. Yes. So that's a boon too. You're right. That knowledge is vital to know that dinosaurs are existing in your time and that you are to leave them alone. Yeah. And the, and <laughs> that you were to leave them alone. <laughs> Remember that. <laughs> but, you know, in the bad guy, maybe we should mention this. The bad guys obviously thought that the boon would be to bring the T-Rex to their world and to make profit out of it. So the object of desire was the dinosaurs themselves. Mm, yeah it's like the the red herring boon yes the red herring boon is what you think is the monster but the boon is 
why did you bring this monster here? <laughs> knowledge of doing such a stupid thing. I like that. It's a red herring boon. Yeah. Just making up all kinds of things. <laughs> I, I like it. it. I feel like we might use that term again in the future. Yeah. And I mean, I think we have very much gone over who the main antagonists are. Obviously, the main antagonist is Julianne Moore. <laughs> um, <laughs> That'd be interesting. It would be. Uh, but no, it's it's the InGen and the jungle itself can be an antagonist on its own, although I think it's mainly just wild. It's not like it has antagonistic intentions for people. Learn your lesson, white men. No, no going into jungles and bringing things back out, okay? <laughs> or at least nothing living. Like if the object yeah, was, yeah. I don't know, a flower petal maybe? Ah, ooh. <laughs> Why would they do that? I don't know, you know, I don't know. <laughs> so I think overall, it's a much better version of what was once Ant Arrow. While I think while Dr. Harding is obviously a huge step forward, it's still missing some things that we're going to talk about in the last incarnation of this trope. But on her own, I think Sarah, in this case, is a really interesting character to watch because she is, she's more clinical than Aunt Arrow, obviously, but even more so. Like she's a, a scientist and a doctor, has a doctorate of paleontology. Like she's looking at this through a clinical view. And she does get involved, but it always kind of goes back, like you said, to that like frame of mind. Here I have learned something about the behaviors of these predators and their familial setting. And it's just so far from what Andero was doing. Yeah, which is fine. For Jurassic Park franchise, it, it feels like they never get too personal. Yeah. And when it's not scientific, it's horrific. It's horror and action. Right. So it's, you know, yeah. it doesn't deter from it, but also we are missing that extra mm -hmm. layer of Sarah Harding's story, yeah. which is, well, what's happening in here, in, in your heart? And I mean, that sounds weird when I say it, but <laughs> yeah. Internally. It's what's happening internally. Yes, that's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe her male boyfriend. Knows. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so good. <laughs> it's hot in here. So that's what I'm blaming it on. It's the heat. <laughs> Overall, I think that Dr. Harding is obviously a much better change from Andero. And I'm really happy to see where it goes from there. And we are going to talk about the last film. And that is what we're calling the quintessential. And that's Jungle Cruise. Let me give you the 411 on Jungle Cruise. Although I guess in Germany it'd be like the 311. I don't know. They have a different 911. <laughs> Jungle Cruise came out in 2021, which, if you don't know, was last year. And it stars Emily Blunt, who is Dr. Lily Hewton. And it also has some other guy in it that you might have heard of. His name is Dwayne Johnson. Barely have heard of him. <laughs> and I have some beef that we're going to discuss very briefly after I describe the information about the movie. So the writers are, of course, three men. Michael Green... Glenn Ficarra and John Rickoa. <laughs> Sorry, John. And, oh, the director is an even harder name to say. Huame <laughs> Colette Zara. Sarah. He's actually done a lot of horror films, which I think is interesting. But I guess you can see a little bit of that flair of a horror 
director in there with some of the scenes. And he's Spanish. He was born in Spain. And then he came to America Very to, cool. to do some films. There's something about Spanish directors. I And I know after I watch a movie, I always get this deep feeling like I understand <laughs> it more than other films. And, I, and sure enough, I look it up. The director's mm-hmm. in Spanish. As this has happened in the last 10 years where I'm just recognizing it more and more. I'm like, oh, I guess that's my style too then. Or something calls to me in that style. I don't know. That's cool. And he came here when he was young. He came here at like 18, like yeah. straight out of childhood. It's pretty amazing. So brave of him. You should give the description. And then I'm going to tell my beef okay. just really quickly. Okay. Plot okay. and then beef. Yes. <laughs> Plot beef. Plot beef. We're ready. <laughs> cool. Interesting story based on a ride. So, yes. Props pa- to it's the writers. Of the Caribbean. It is. Yeah. Anyway, so just to get your head around what's going on here, it begins with a legend, as all things do. 1556, the conquistadors searched in South America for the Lagrimas de Cristal tree, whose flowers cure illness, heal injuries, and lift curses. Highly recommend. <laughs> <laughs> And when the conquistadors discovered that the local tribe in this, we're in a South American area of the jungle, and they know that they use the power because they, I think they actually heal the conquistadors, if I'm not mistaken. But they are not telling them where it is. So they try to force its location out of them. But for this violence, the jungle punishes the conquistadors, making them immortal and unable to leave the site of the Amazon River. And if they do, the jungle like pulls them back and it's like kind of gruesome and interesting. Very Pirates of the Caribbean. You're totally right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then we jump to present day in the film, which is 1916 London. And Dr. Lily Hewton's Tears of the Moon research is presented by her brother McGregor to an all-male royal society. And we are to understand that Lily's goal is to find the tree in order to revolutionize medicine. But it requires an arrowhead artifact that the society won't part with. So she ends up stealing it because, like, what else are you supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And just on time, because there is somebody else after this artifact, it's always about a treasure hunt and there's got to be a time limit or a chase or a race. Yes. So in this case, it's, oh, this one's interesting. This is a German royal dude. I'm not, I think he's a prince from Germany. Yeah. It's interesting because the reason he wants the tears is because there's a war going on between Germany and Britain and he's hoping to get the leg up and to live forever. But he, I think he mostly wants yeah. to win the war. <laughs> <laughs> so he's after the arrowhead yeah i was gonna say he's a german prince with a dutch accent so that's fun it's so confusing <laughs> all right go with it but lily is the one that ends up with the arrowhead so this is good now that she can go after the treasure rather than the german prince so traveling to the brazilian republic lily and her brother mcgregor search for an amazon river guide and find frank who offers jungle cruises for tourists Frank, however, declines, finding a woman in trousers to be a sign of naivete. (laughs) But he changes his mind when he sees that Lily has the arrowhead. Before takeoff, uh, it becomes clear that the German prince intends to pursue them, ready to use violence in order to get it back. Okay, so then they escape the prince. It's a lot of action at the at the get-go, which is interesting. You know, why not? Totally. Yeah. We get to see a little bit of the, the action stars yeah. doing their thing already, including Lily, who's, who's, like, capable. It's not like she's, like, the rock who can, like, beat up people really not at all. Well, she's pretty efficient. I was going to say even efficiently. She is pretty she efficient, is. actually. Yeah. It totally works yeah. as an action star, by the way. Uh, early into the voyage, Lily finds maps and research in Frank's cabin. So questioning this, Frank explains that he too was once after the tree, but then he gave up. Lily doesn't quite believe him, 
but then they are captured by this Amazon tribe who pretends to be hostile <laughs> until the ruse that Frank paid them to perform goes too far. And it's a really nice turn on what we see in King Kong, right? Yes. He's seeing this like village, this remote village. But continue, sorry. Ex no, no, exactly. That. I would like to talk about this tribe too, because I think that's a, that's a nice improvement from where we began. So the tribe's chief, who is a woman, then helps Lily and her brother translate the symbols on the arrowhead, and they discover the tree's location. But then the group is attacked by the undead conquistadors who have emerged from their petrified states in the jungle. <laughs> and Frank is stabbed in the heart by one of them and thought dead. But when the group recovers from the attack, Frank reappears with a knife still through, <laughs> petrified it's through his body. so funny. And it's pretty funny. <laughs> so Frank eventually has to reveal that he is one of the cursed conquistadors, which is why he can't die, even when stabbed. But he explains that he took the tribe's side all those years ago and trapped his comrades so they wouldn't continue to do harm. So feeling closer to Frank, Lily and he continue to the location of the tree, finding its entrance submerged in a temple that's kind of national treasury. Yeah. And there, everyone converges. The German bad guy, the Spanish bad guys, McGregor, who was off a little and came back, you know, whatever. <laughs> so Lily and Frank are forced to use the arrowhead to unlock the tree's power under the temporary red moon. And as mm -hmm. a fight ensues, Lily recovers one flower. The German guy is crushed by a falling rock. <laughs> In order to save Lily from the conquistadors, Frank petrifies himself and the undead Spaniards into a rock face. So it's all very tragic, but Lily does still have one flower. Realizing what her true feelings are for Frank, Lily uses her one flower to lift Frank's curse and restore his mortality. Before they leave, the moon's last beam blooms a single additional flower, which Lily takes for research. Frank leaves the Amazon because now he's got a second chance and he decides to go and be with Lily and then back in London Lily turns down a newly offered position with the Royal Society and becomes a professor of the University of Cambridge <laughs> yay who needs to watch movies just have Charlotte watch it and she'll tell you everything you need to know it's perfect so tell me your beef yeah. what's your beef okay so as you know, and probably some other people that listen know, I collect pop vinyls of female characters, strong female characters that I love. And I had been wanting to get a new one and I was like looking around and then I saw this movie and I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. Cause she's funny, she's smart and she's like athletic and she's like hilarious and like really fiercely independent. Did a little search, type, type, type and found there's a pop vinyl of The Rock and I was like, cool. And then there was no pop vinyl of Emily Blunt. <gasps> she is literally the main character. We open about her and we close with her. And so that really ticked me off. I went to Twitter. I, I expressed my anger on Twitter. That felt that made me feel a little better. But I was like, I can't believe this. It's almost like they're packaging for this movie as Dwayne Johnson and the sidekick. Totally. If that's what the intent was, it's not told like that. Even so, though, even if she were the sidekick. So they create one, but not the other. Like Batman and Robin, they always create both. Oh, I see. Yeah, then that's just messed you know? up. Like either way that you slice it, it's just wrong. Thanks. Thanks for giving us this cool character, but also like, hmm. Oh, that is, that's a weird mistake to make. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been pretty angry about that. Just, you know, angry feminist as we do. They did the same thing with Star Trek with the pop vinyls. They have a pop vinyl for all of the captains except for Janeway. And it's just like, why? Why do you guys do this to me? Like, it's obviously not 
they're not created for me, I guess, because they don't do a lot of female care, strong female characters, especially. Or they don't think their market includes consumers? Because, I mean, even if that's true, let's say that's true. Let's say their consumers are mainly males. If they're hardcore Trekkies, they're still going to want all the captains. It's not like they're assuming all the male consumers only watch the shows with male captains in them. So that's not a good reason. I don't know. That doesn't overall just there's no logical reason for it. Well, and also, how would you know if the market is ready, if, if the market wants it, if you never make it? You know, if you never make it, there's no opportunity for anybody to go buy it to show you there's a market for it. It really like kind of is a microcosm of the bigger issues with film and television in terms of inclusivity. Yeah, we'll give you this, but you're not getting all the other things that literally every other character gets who's a male. It just really pissed me off. So I have beef now and I'm a vegetarian slash vegan, so <laughs> it's not good. So anyway, thank you again for that description. We can talk about her character. So the first point is always like her innocence level slash factor. And I think she's a unique character because she's very apt at the beginning. Like she already is a strong person. She already feels confident in herself. She already has a lot of knowledge. But her innocence level is really, in this case, about operating in a completely foreign environment, which is fair, I think. What do you think? I Yeah, I agree. It, it's a nice balance because you do see that she is both capable and able to compartmentalize what people think about her and what's popular opinion and what she actually needs and wants to do. And we've already seen based on her actions and the information given to us that she takes very unpopular opinions. I mean, mm. that her opinions are very unpopular, I would say. And that includes like when they get to the port in South America, the first thing she wants to do is like free all these caged animals. And the same thing with her brother. And we learned that her brother came out and it, he was disowned by his family except for her. Yeah. So it's it's nice. It's a nice like, oh, well, this is where we begin with. And it, it's a very strong character. However, her insistence sort of gets mm. her in trouble because she is in a foreign land. So there is still that naivete. Like she suffers from a bit of white lady syndrome in that way where like she's just like, this is not right. And she changes it. And it's like, well, there are customs and things. But on the other hand, like animal abuse, I'm like, yeah, you go. You go, girl. Like, I I'm, I got your back. So it, it is, yeah, I'm just repeating what you said. But it's a very interesting meeting of innocence and knowledge. But I like it. Yeah, it's fun. And we, I mean, you know, we've already pretty much discussed her motivation to going into the jungle. I think other than the obvious, which is for her research, I think the beginning of the film really does play a lot into the rest of her character, where she has to have her brother give a speech that she wrote about a subject that she knows because they won't listen to her. And I think there's a lot of unsaid things, a lot of subtlety in a way throughout the film that I really appreciate because you don't need it to be in your face because that's not usually, I mean, sometimes it is that way, but usually it's not. It's more subtle uh -huh. that she has to prove herself to people. And she doesn't obviously have to prove herself, but I think that on a subconscious level, maybe I'm projecting, but on a subconscious level, it seems like she is determined to really stand on her own two feet and to be able to do things herself to the point where sometimes it's problematic. Like we all need help sometimes, you know, and it takes strength to say, I need help with something. Agreed. And I think that's part of what she learns is how to find that medium. But it's really a good motivation, I think, for her. And it's really well established and very like ridiculous 
to watch like it's funny because it's ridiculous but you're also like yeah at the end when they're like come please and tell us about your journey and she's like nah i'm good you know <laughs> that's the nice thing about movies and film is that you can have these bookend pieces and really have like justice for the character that you don't get to see in real life which i think is sad but also like really nice to see for young girls and for young boys that's the role of the story is the catharsis. We understand it's not the real world, by the way. <laughs> but the patterns yeah. are subconscious. So if we see that, we are going to have the catharsis and we will apply that to the real world, even though we don't expect bookends in real life. That doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. But the feeling of it is very much real. You're right. I like it when yeah. movies use that tool because it is justified in the subconscious. Yeah. I feel we feel it later. Yeah. What she said. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> The way they wrote her character was really spot on because she's the oldest sibling. She's taking her father's research and running with it and that she knows how to do everything. You know that she's taking care of herself. She's taking care of her younger brother. And the only thing against her is, is the fact that she's a woman. And she mm -hmm. very rarely lets that even phase her, except I think maybe with Frank. I think the only person mm. who really makes her feel motivated to mm. prove herself is Frank. And it's not for a bad way. Maybe it begins that way because he's the naysayer. Mm. I'll read the scene the naysaying scene that we've been doing cool. for each of our movie selects. Good. So I, I think it starts that way and you're kind of like, why are you trying to prove yourself to him out of all these people? Because you've been doing so well. But I can see why. It's because she's she's starting an affection with him that she's never experienced before. She's never had romantic love in that. Well, maybe not never, but at least yeah. us as viewers haven't seen something that intimate yet with her. And it right. feels interesting as opposed yeah. to like annoying. Definitely. Like even with her brother, there's sort of a distance. There's a support there, obviously, that he talks about. And we should talk about that a little bit more. She still has this distance. So that makes a lot of sense. Good point. Obviously, her brother knows her well enough that she doesn't have to prove a thing to him. If anything, totally. it's like she has to be patient with the rest of society until like <laughs> he's able to give the reins over to her, like literally yes. in one scene. It's like, okay, now you drive. She's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> And it's it's a really, you know it's well-made because it's so awful and they make it funny, but not in a like, <laughs> that's ridiculous. It's more like a funny as in like, isn't this absurd that we did this and we right. totally continue to do this? So I'm glad. I think the writers really caught on to that. If I was the director, I would have told her, just imagine you are the firstborn son and do everything yeah. the way a firstborn son would do. And then when you're taken aback by somebody pointing out that you're a woman, yeah, what do you do with that? Yeah, It doesn't slow you down. That's what it doesn't do. Yeah. Every time we talk about our movie selection, there's a scene that tries to get our main character to deny the journey. Mm. And actually, Frank does this twice, I think, with Lily or a few times with Lily and her brother. But the the big one at the beginning is when Lily has gone to Frank to hire him for the journey. So here is the scene. So do you know the region, Mr. Nilo? Well, if it's in the Amazon River, I know it. And lady, I could tell you of all the places in the world you can go. The last place you want to go is Lagrimas de Cristal. Oh, but I do. And I will. Oh, but you won't, Pants. You can't get there. Nobody can get there. And if they could, they wouldn't. It's not a fun vacation. Well, I'm not here for a vacation. And then later, when they're already on the river, there's this downtime moment where Frank is playing the guitar and she's drawing? She's drawing. No, I mean, what are you doing out here? Chasing maps all over the place? Or is this your idea of fun? The tears of the moon. Oh, come on. I believe that the legend is real. Which it's not. And I'm going to find it. Which you won't. And when I do, just imagine the lives that could be saved. Legend says one petal from the tree will heal anything. 
it will change medicine forever. It's the beginning of a scientific revolution. It's very exciting, Frank. So you want to be the Darwin of flowers? And I want to help as many people as I can. You want to save the world? I didn't say save the world. It's very noble. Well, thank you. It's also very stupid. <laughs> you could easily hate Frank in some of these moments, but you kind of don't. <laughs> Why don't we, Jen? What is that? Is that just because he's the rock? I think he's a bit broken. I mean, we see that he's sad. Like, he lives life because he has to, but he's ready to, to not anymore. He's tired, and I think he's kind of bitter in a way. And she brings all this life back to his life and to him, I think, um, and doesn't give up on him and, like, continuously wants him to have better than the way society treats him and the way that he's feeling about himself. And that's very similar to her brother, and I think it's very similar to herself. That's it. Despite it being a time period piece, the character of Frank also feels like he's not he's not trying to overpower anybody or mm. make anybody think that he knows better, except when it comes to the river. I feel like he's pretty yeah. <laughs> he yeah, he's pretty Confident. hardcore when it comes to the river and navigation, but like little things like her being able to throw a punch mm-hmm. is like he's like, yeah, that's good form. Or when the brother tells him that he's gay, and he's like, yeah, this is to being, being elsewhere. You know, it's it's like this really nice moment where he doesn't judge anybody. Yeah, he just does what he needs to do. Like you said, there's this bitterness there that makes him easy to get along with, but also strong. Yeah. Um, and I think all of this is without saying to some degree that her later cleverness level and factor is just stronger because she's now learned a lot about the jungle and the river and she was already pretty brave so i think it just once she learns the environment a bit more she's really able to sink into it and do what everybody else has been doing in the jungle whereas i think a lot of like her brother is a better example i think of what we typically see of female characters in the jungle in these kinds of situations and ironically a bit more of the straight man in this representing who we would be in this situation to some degree and he just wants to get out of the jungle he's like why am i here please (laughs) let me leave yeah i think her her later cleverness just is translated from one environment to another but it's not unsatisfying i make it sound like it's boring but it's not it's really kind of cool how it transforms yeah meaning her motivation doesn't change but the things that she's learning along the way mainly comes from not only the jungle, but from Frank himself, who is sort of this manifestation of the jungle. Yes, very nice, yes. It's not of outer knowledge because she is an expert on outer knowledge, but it is all like the inner journey that we were describing that each one of these female main characters go through. The deeper you get into the jungle, Mm -hmm. the more you realize your inner journey, which is not always romance. In this case, it is. Yeah. But it works because she's already such a stable and confident person yeah that frank is sort of just completing that thing that was missing and it's her doing the action of saving him that makes a big difference so the boon (laughs) if we're talking about the boon it's not only the flower it's frank himself it's just how she gets him to change yeah the cathartic part and it's it's well earned yeah and it doesn't take over I think the the romance aspect sometimes can be annoying for me because it's like, great, another straight couple it just gets boring. But this did not take over. It was very much third in line of the important things that were happening in the film. And in the end, 
their friends first. And I think that's really a good message too. Like they're having a great time at the very end when she's trying to teach them how to drive a car. It's hilarious. And they really are like good friends and they've been through something together as friends. And there can be that romantic aspect, of course, but it just doesn't overshadow all the other really interesting and cool things that are going on. Agreed. A lot of the romance tropes are sort of taken out of this. Like there's no marriage at the end that makes everybody satisfied. (laughs) There's no time where the female main character is not doing an action. She does all of the actions. And Frank is, they're they're both sacrificing things for each other the whole time, which is that friendship thing that you were talking about, I think. And, you know, the romance is like the bonus, which is like, ah, there's also something else there. Which I think is a much better message for young people, especially. Yes. Like I'm like I'm super old for those youngins. <laughs> for those I think. kids nowadays will appreciate <laughs> this movie. <laughs> well, so that's pretty much about her and some of the other characters. I think we should talk about obviously the environment some more. The locals. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about the locals? We've already been introduced to this tribe because they were the ones that first encountered the conquistadors 400 years ago. And they were kind to them. Not only did they save their lives, but they allowed them to stay without revealing their topmost secret, which is like, that's too much power. This flower is too much power for anybody, and it's not supposed to leave here. But, and even though we don't follow that tribe as characters, when we do come to present day 1900s, it's interesting that they're they're so different from what their ancestors used to be in a lot of ways, but also the same because their location remains the same. The way they live remains yeah. the same as far as like how they survive mm. and they're not part of society yet. Right. But they can speak English super well. They know how money exchange works and they've already worked for tourists that Frank knows. Part of the modern world without actually being a part of the modern world. Which is brilliant. So they're disguised as a hostile tribe, but revealed to be the helpful tribe. And I I think it's a really, like we mentioned before, a really nice turn on the way that they've treated Native people in these situations in these films in the past. They play on that in the movie. They make themselves look and act like those original fears that people had about these people. And it's just really funny that they all just like drop the act at some point and are just like how much longer is this going to take like we have things to do okay (laughs) and i think it's a testament to survival like they are of a past time but they also like you said live in the modern world and have a means of survival that is slightly different but still uphold some of their traditions and their culture and like continue to be together and survive in this other world you know i really liked it i don't know how maybe other native people of the amazon would feel about it i don't know if they feel it's demeaning or something but i found it nice because they're there to take advantage of white people who are there touring the amazon and i think that is the best thing ever like yes please scare them for money because that's hilarious (laughs) So we want to talk about the beasts and the terrain. The gruesomeness of the conquistadores, especially as a cursed, weirdly ghostly, yet, I don't even know what to call it, gross. If you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, it's the same concept. If you're cursed, you're going to look ugly and beastly and act beastly. So that very much counts in this movie as the beast obstacle. And they are being chased by them, pursued by them. And they're willing to use violence on the dime. It's not like they've learned anything. Frank is the only one who seems to have removed himself from that early hostility. 
even though that's where he came from. Isn't that yeah. interesting? I think that would be so hard for me to yeah. remove myself from people I, w- I would have called brothers. It must have gone really wrong. Yeah. But he's been around for a couple hundred years, so that probably helps. <laughs> <laughs> and then the jungle itself, right? I mean, because they have Frank, it doesn't feel as dangerous, but he still has to navigate things like rapids and weather. And there's a few times where everybody's... Wildlife. Yeah, wildlife. Everybody gets sick because the motion of the boat is too much, you know. <laughs> we, for- we forget about the conflict of, of just nature itself. It's interesting. Yeah. There's a really great... I think it's hilarious. I don't know. A really great scene where they're loading up onto the boat for the very first time. And there's like piles and piles of luggage. And he's like, the boat literally cannot hold all of this luggage. You can't bring all of this. And Lily's like, (laughs) it's not mine. And it's her brother's. And he's like, got every luggage case you could think of. I thought it was so funny. And it was nice to see that turned on its head as well. But just another one of those things of like, this is the environment you are going into. The boat literally will not float if you bring all of this luggage. Um, We kind of, I mean, we already talked about this as well, but the treasurer boon to bring back is, of course, the obvious things and like the the physical things and then the emotional or knowledge-based things. So we have the the flower petal, but then like you said, we have these other aspects too. We have possibly new love, especially new friendship and new knowledge about something that could change the world as well. And for Lily, I think a lot more knowledge about herself and what she's capable of. And probably same for McGregor, too. Like, he survived all this. He, I would hope that he feels a bit more confident in his life because he knows yes. what he can do now, what he's made out of. Yes. Of. All three of our main characters take away quite a bit from the journey. And I like that it's all three layers. It's not just, like, one or two of them. It is. It's all three. It's the, the love, the physical object, and then the knowledge. Perfect. Shall we talk about the antagonist? Sure. Yeah. here's my lengthy description of all of the antagonists half dead half plant men (laughs) regular men a curse and the dangers of local animal life it's a lot of antagonists yes (laughs) i don't know maybe this is also too much of a stretch but even the conquistadors sort of have some level of you have some level of compassion for them i mean these are men who have been tortured for I mean, I know that they weren't awake for all of it, but they were awake for a lot of it, who have sort of been tortured and become these monsters because of the way they were in life. And that can only make things worse if you keep somebody who's a monster in life, a monster in death, a living death. I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that the conquistadors are sort of sympathetic or do you feel like they're they're pretty much like... Sympathetic. I mean, you do have some sympathy because you're told right. the tale of what got them there, which was a noble reason. They're trying to save yeah. a daughter of one of them. That's noble. Yeah. But you don't get any redemption features once they're introduced back on the screen. There's nothing that they do mm-hmm. that feels redemptive or sympathetic at all. True. It Maybe if they had shown the relationship with Frank or Frank would have talked to them. True more on the level of equals but uh, you know i feel like you're right they've been alive for Mm. so long and they've been fighting for so long that they don't know what else to say Mm. to each other it feels like it's worn out like frank has tried that so many times it didn't work like to close that to bookend or to end that relationship is like i've tried so long to bridge this between us and it's just it doesn't work they are pretty flat in that sense and 
I mean, I was going to say I think that the German prince dude is probably the flattest. Yes. Tell us why. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's a comic relief villain, right? It, it wouldn't work for him to be disgusting or crude because that's what the conquistadors are. So yeah. they needed a, a different kind of villain, which is the goofy. Effeminate? Effeminate villain. When he dies, it's like. Okay, you okay. know, that, you don't feel you don't feel anything except yeah. like haha the way he died was funny, you yeah. know. <laughs> yes. So Agreed. again, a very Disney thing to do. Yeah. And if this was produced somewhere else, maybe they would have given him more sympathy or reasons for what he's doing. With I know to win a war is a big deal, mm. but the fact that th- that he says it in a nonchalant way is like, yeah. "Oh, to win the war, but mainly to live forever and so I can rule forever." That's so flat, right? Yes. But it's funny. It is very entertaining in that sense. He does kill a bee (laughs) unnecessarily. So he's obviously a bastard. He must die. Um, We have so few bees, okay? I know it was like early 1900s, but we still have so few bees. And I was just thinking, I guess he's not really an antagonist, but Paul Giamatti is also in this movie. We didn't really talk about his character that much, but he's the one who owns the boat and he's kind of beefing with Frank and he kind of makes reappearances and becomes a thorn in their maw, I guess. He wasn't very flat, but he wasn't a complete antagonist. He was just kind of an annoyance, I guess. An early I would call him an early obstacle for Frank. Ah, uh, okay. Which I think was actually a good placement too. I think from the threshold, when you enter the journey, there has to be a reason for even Frank not to go. Because mm-hmm. it's very easy for him to just say like, okay, get aboard, Lily, and let's go. Right. It's not. There's, there's things in his way mm-hmm. too, in Frank's way. These are the same trope, and it's just so different how, how we see them interact with these environments. And it has so many of the same elements, and it's, it's just really mind-blowing how stories work like this. And they can feel, like, so original. Like, you have to really have a talent, in my opinion, or a very somebody who's very, very good at formula to be able to create something like this if it's not done using your intuition. I don't know how people construct things like this other than intuitively and by looking at these kinds of stories. You know, there's only so many things you can do, but it it still kind of all ends up being very similar in a good way. But it still feels like a different story. That is part of our goal on this podcast, which is to identify the patterns so you can change the pieces that make the pattern. That's what we're seeing in Jungle Cruise. It's like, ah, we know this pattern like the back of our hand, but we've never seen it like yeah. this before. And wow, is there several mm. options to do this more? Yeah. It feels refreshed when it's really just the same because of those changes that you're talking about when you recognize them that you can change them. And I think if you're somebody who enjoys movies, enjoys books, enjoys stories in general, it's it's also really beneficial to see these things. And I think it can give you some inner insight. I mean, if you're a huge fan of Star Wars and you meet another huge fan of Star Wars, you guys are sharing a cathartic story or a cathartic moment in a story. And I think that's a really, it's a community building thing, even though it's not the communities that we started off with oral storytelling. They're much bigger, like wider reaching communities, but they're still the same basic concept, right? It's like a village of people who are sharing an idea or a cathartic feeling of some kind. That was beautiful. 
Uh, what she said i am curious if people really liked this or if you didn't like it but if you if you did like this i would be curious to to hear maybe why or what questions you have if you have questions i think it's a really interesting subject well thanks for going on this winding river of a journey with us (laughs) down to the center of the jungle So as always, you can follow and talk to us on Facebook, Twitter, Patreon, and via email. Everything is at ByteThePen. Our email is is ByteThePen at gmail.com. You can just look for our pen logo. If you'd like to join our pen pack, these puns might be getting out of hand. (laughs) I love them! (laughs) You can become a patron pen biter on our Patreon. And if you can't afford to help support us in that way we totally understand and it really helps us when you like and share our episodes and posts and leave us comments and tell us what you think so a huge thank you to all of our listeners and to our patron pen biters jesse m thunderfly and jeanette m thank you for listening and make sure to stick around for our closing clip slash reading so caps off pen biters it's from dora the live action movie because that fits this woman in the jungle trope these words are said by dora's mother but i think it's a nice way to end this segment and this is what she says to dora you have the whole world to explore go see it make friends that's real exploring 